Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Good morning to those of you who are at home this morning. Welcome to this hour of Sunday school. Hope you're all well. Fret not. Lord sovereign. Amen. 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 Before we continue, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the glorious gospel. Thank you for your people here this morning, those at home. Um, Bless us, Lord, as uh, we bless your name this day for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Last summer slash um, fall, uh, we began a series that I've wanted to do for some time, and that is um, on on certain Bible verses that are most often taken out of context. I'm entitled, Context is Key. What does this verse mean? by what it says. Um, This now is lesson 10. Uh, We took a break for about six weeks as Matt um, taught from the Psalms, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll cover a few more. I'm I'm not sure how many. And then after that, we'll probably delve into um, the Proverbs that will take us into uh, summer break, okay? Now, we opened that study with one of the greatest questions um, in Holy Scripture, and that is Acts chapter 8, verse 30, um, do you understand what you are reading? Now, the setting there um, is um, of an emasculated Gentile convert to Judaism, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch um, traveling homeward, reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Philip, who was sent by the Lord, the Lord sent an angel to Philip and sent Philip to the desert, um, ran alongside um, a chariot. He heard a man reading the passage of the suffering servant of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, And he asked, do you understand what you were reading? To which the eunuch replied, "Um, how could I unless someone guides me? So he climbs aboard what was probably um, a gilded chariot, sits next to the man, and preaches Christ from Isaiah 53. You know the rest of the story. He's converted, they find a body of water, they pull alongside the road, he's baptized, and there's a new convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you understand um, what you are reading is so important because indeed context is key, amen? Context is key. Um, Some folks like to play um, Bible bingo. That is, they, they open the scriptures, they slam down their finger, 
and claim some particular verse is theirs for the day. Don't admit to doing that if you've ever done that, but that's okay. Um, all that to say, many people think of the Bible is as um, independent nuggets of individual verses of, of personal application. But again, the Bible was not written to us, amen? The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So therefore, when we read the scriptures, we have to read um, the context of the verse within the context of the paragraph in context to the chapter, which is in context to that section of the book, and then in context to the book itself. Basic ABC principles of biblical interpretation. Um, people who, who misinterpret the Bible, um, of course, they, they often fail to observe context, and they'll use a verse or verses as a pretext uh, many times to support um, their false presuppositions. They'll just yank anything out of context. For instance, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, and we covered this, you know, there'll be two in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. See, right there, there's a secret rapture. But if you read the context, it's the one that's taken away is being taken away into judgment, not the other way around. So as we jokingly say, you actually want to be left behind. Amen? Now, the first verse we covered is a classic. Of, I've, I've heard people use it when they plant a church as, as their launching verse. Right? It's a verse filled with powerful promises of prosperity, protection, and hope for a great future. Okay, what's that? Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 20, we're not going to look at that. We're going to look at something in 1 Corinthians 13. But the first verse we covered was Jeremiah 29, 11 that says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I've heard that verse quoted to individuals who are struggling with vocation, you know, discerning God's will. Or when someone is in the midst of financial difficulty, they'll yank that verse out and say, remember God's promises, remember his specific plans to help us prosper. Take that verse and claim it in the name of Jesus, Right? But if you back up to verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, it's God speaking to a whole group of people, that is the, the entire Israelite nation, where God is laying down specifics with regard to promises of his after what? 70 years of exile. So when people cite that personally, I'll ask them, are you being ready to be led into 70 years of exile? Because that's the context. We looked at a number of other verses. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We looked at the words of Jesus when he said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, um, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And we learned that that does not mean... <laughs> you will do greater miracles in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So there's context to that. And we looked at those verses, many verses. And we learned that it's not a matter of, of he who reads the most. But it is a matter of he who understands the most. Amen? So continuing this morning, I want to look at a couple verses. The first will be 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, 13. I think we'll cover two this morning. So we'll probably finish up a little early. First Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. That verse has led some believers, some Christians, to conclude that love is more important than faith and hope. You'll see that on plaques. We actually have that on a plaque in our home. Our grandson is with us. Well, my wife is in Sacramento taking care of her mother right now, but our grandson is here, and I just, I looked at the, it's in the room in which they sleep, that we have that on a plaque. Okay, and it's a great, beautiful verse, but there's context to it, okay? Now, as you probably are aware um, a common uh, objection that is often used, even by some Christians, to undermine the clear biblical teaching, usually having to do with the justice of God or um, his predetermined will in matters of, of providence and salvation, um, some will actually say, but, but that is not loving. You ever heard that? It's not loving. A loving God wouldn't punish anyone they say, not with eternal judgment. You know, divine justice and wrath are viewed by some um, as an evil hermeneutic. So to them, love trumps everything. Love, the love of God trumps every other attribute of God. So therefore, saying that, that that is not loving is really just an attempt to, to gut the justice of God. In uh, the August, August 2019 edition of Table Talk magazine, um, one writer puts it like this, quote, love has become unmoored from its biblical foundation, set adrift in a culture, and now passes for the new religion of cultural niceness. But, even when we step out of culture and into the pages of Scripture, we can still misinterpret the biblical meaning of love. And one of those misinterpretations is drawn from what is arguably the most popular chapter in the Bible on the topic of love, end quote. And that, of course, is 1 Corinthians 13, to which there's context. We're in the, we'll get to it, actually, in the sermon series. We're in chapter 12 right now. But we'll come to learn that the context of the love chapter has to do with spiritual gifts, the operation of spiritual gifts. But on the face of it, <clears throat> this is often taken out of context that love trumps faith and hope. 
So if you have faith in solid doctrine, so to speak, and it comes across as being mean, that God is a God of wrath as well as a God of love, they'll, they'll want to erase wrath. So consider faith. When, when we look at faith, you know, briefly and, and generally, um, the, the Bible typically uses faith in three ways. The first is that um, it, faith, is the instrument of our salvation. Ephesians 2.8. Faith also is our steadfast trust in God and his works. Hebrews 11. Right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And faith is also our trust in orthodox doctrine, Jude 3. So that, that's how we see faith um, throughout the Bible. Um, love then, w- without the counterbalance of faith and hope, think about this, actually becomes unloving. Love, without the counterbalance of faith and hope, actually becomes unloving. Because love minus faith, think about this, love minus faith and a sovereign God. Or love minus hope in the Lord of sound doctrine. Predestination, salvation of sinners for his glory above all else. Salvation, your salvation is for his glory above all else. Divine wrath, and so on. When you remove faith and hope from love, it makes, and I'm quoting, I think it's Joe Holland from that table talk issue. It makes love into a fickle, subjective emotion devolving into shallow well-wishes and general niceness. End of quote. Is that not our culture today? Paul Ramsey, he observes that I love you in this culture usually means I love me and want you. (laughs) Or I would add to that, in our sickening, politically correct age, I love me and want you to like me, so in no way will I offend thee. And if that means silencing the truth, so be it. Sadly to say. So true Christian love, it's a wonderful thing, amen? It's wonderful, but it does not always succeed. Christian love does not always succeed. That's not the point here in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Paul is simply saying that, that love as a reality lasts forever. Love as a reality lasts forever. Not that it always wins. Not, not in time and space. Love does not always win. Love does not always triumph because people who love the Lord enough and love people enough historically have been torched for proclaiming the most glorious love message there is, the gospel. 
Okay, love, his point is that love will never disappear in, in contrast to other things that will disappear. That's the point. So in order to make that contrast clear, here in 1 Corinthians 13, um, Paul picks some very, very important things. Faith and hope. Faith and hope. Okay, so notice what he says, but now, but now faith. Okay, what does Paul mean by but now? But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. What he means quite simply is right now. Okay, right now in time, okay, temporal, temporal time, this time on earth, this segment of time in which we dwell, there are three good things, faith, hope, and love. So, and now faith, right? You need faith for salvation. It's a gift. We walk by faith, not by sight. We need faith to trust God. Okay, and we have hope. We need that for security. Confident trust in the faith that's been granted to us. But, but faith and hope are temporary. They will not last forever. Love will. Because there's going to come a time when you don't need faith. You will have everything in your hand that you've believed for in glory. No need for faith. You won't need hope. Because all of your hope will be realized in Christ, in glory. So the greatest of these is love because love is the only thing that lasts forever. That's, that's, what, that's what he means. Faith will be replaced by sight. For when we see him, we will see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we will then be like him. Glory. So hope is the preservation of our faith. It's the firm expectation that, that God, who can be trusted, will fulfill his promises. We believe this. Amen? So hope will be replaced by reality. So they're temporal. Love will never be replaced by anything. God himself is love. We will dwell with him forever. The love of God's people will be made manifest in Christ as we dwell together forever with our Redeemer in a new heaven and a new earth. So in the, in the here and now, when love... This is another quote. In the here and now, when love is pri over, prioritized over or to the exclusion of faith, of hope. Okay, let me, read, let me read this again and follow this. This is great. In the here and now, when love is prioritized over or to the exclusion of faith and hope, love loses its object, the blessed God, as he truly is. End quote.
So when people want to exclude God's wrath, his justice, his predetermined will for love, they're shading his character at best. Amen? So now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So again, it's the greatest because it's eternal. Faith will disappear when all is then sight. Hope will disappear when all then is fulfillment. Love will never disappear. So while we wait for glory, we need faith, we need hope, and we need love in in equal and in ever-increasing measure while we're here. Faith and hope will disappear. Love will last forever. So the greatest of these is love. That's the context to that. Amen? All right. Next verse, it's found in Galatians 6, verse 7. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now, that verse is often interpreted as those who, you know, may desire to go out in the world and, you know, sow their wild oats. And if you do that, you will get what's coming to you. That's how that verse is often interpreted. It's usually interpreted as sowing to the flesh. If you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Now, is that principle true? Yeah, absolutely. When we read uh, the wisdom poetry of, of Proverbs, we see that principle throughout. We also know that scripture is clear that your sin will find you out. It'll find you out. But here, this text is talking about giving. Giving money. Money. Something, um, unfortunately, many people don't want to hear about unless, of course, it's talking about how much they get. Even some Christians. Giving is uh, just a difficult thing for some people. But they don't know the blessing that comes with giving because they refuse to give. Paul here is talking about giving money for the ministry of the word. Look at verse six. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So two parties here being considered, those who are preaching the living word of God and those hearing it. The hearers ought to open their checkbooks, their wallets, and share, notice, some of the good things with those ministering the word. 
And by the way, I have no agenda here with regard to me at all. This is just a verse I've taken out of context. I get paid and I'm blessed and that's not the point whatsoever. But, you know, I'm reminded now and again of, of how much some Christians of all people um, just refuse to give. I remember a, a guy came in during the week. He doesn't attend here any longer. He was all disjointed because the previous Sunday I spoke about giving. And what I said was, although tithing, giving one-tenth of our income off the top, although tithing is not commanded in the new covenant, what I said that day was, I can easily make a case that giving a tenth of our income is a great place to start for new covenant believers. Just as a baseline for giving. This guy came in and he was all bowed up, angry, and I found out later why. He doesn't give. And I don't look at the records of anyone in this church who gives what, how much they give. So I inquired of someone who does. He says, yeah, <laughs> he doesn't give. Or at least there's no record of it. Now, hopefully that's changed. I hope that's changed for the brother. <laughs> okay, so why then give for the sake of the ministry of the word. Notice, so that, verse 7, you don't deceive yourself <laughs> because God is not mocked. How do you mock God in this context? By listening to preaching, God's primary means of sanctifying his people and not opening your wallet to support the ministry. Notice, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Well, what's that? Those who merely spend their money on themselves. They're so tight-fisted that they never give to God's ministry. They never give to Christ's church. They just keep it all. They squander it. Now, they, they may invest wisely in a worldly sense. They may be incredibly wealthy, but they, they invest for themselves and not the kingdom. They, they sow it on themselves, and they don't realize that they're reaping corruption, rottenness. The guy who walked in that day on me exemplified rottenness, his countenance. He was so angry. I'm like, dude, why are you tripping on me? I remember tracking a guy down, another story, different situation, who just never came to church until you called him. Then he'd come that following Sunday, and then he'd disappear until you called him again. So I showed up at his house, surprise visit one day, and he was sitting there watching th this TV that was, it was almost too big for the wall. Okay? And that's fine. Hey, man, that's fine. And he had in his lap the most expensive, up-to-date phone 
that is available on the market. And yet, he's been helped before and he would always struggle financially. So I asked someone to, I just want to know if he gives or not. No record at all of giving anything. There's one verse in the Bible, or no, let me, let me change that. There's one thing in the Bible that God challenges his people to put him to the test to. You know what that is? Giving. In the book of Malachi, he says, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? In tithes and offerings, says the Lord. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me. The whole nation of y'all, Israel. Bring the whole tithe into the star storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this. Test me, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out you for you a blessing until it overflows. He says, put me to the test. So if a Christian is always struggling financially, and, 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 and Lord, and granted, we all struggle in certain times of life, but if a Christian is just always struggling and come to find out they never give, my encouragement is start giving. But, back to Galatians, the one who sows to the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, that's what giving is in this context. You are giving to the work of the Holy Spirit, that is, for the ministry of your heart. The Holy Spirit works and ministers to his people through his word. That is eternal truth. And then from out of that, you will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It doesn't mean that you earn it. It's just the fruit thereof. Amen? Amen can't earn salvation because you give more or less, but he's making a point here. Verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So this text, Galatians, has to do with giving to the work of the Lord, ministry of the word of God in the church. And if you spend your money um, self-centeredly, you know, only on yourself, that is the flesh, you will reap God's chastisement of the flesh inside and out. So while sowing to the Spirit by His grace, you will know the blessings that come in this life. This isn't a prosperity gospel message that you, know, you sow the seed and you're going to be wealthy. That's not the point. <laughs> not, not at all. You, you can't take this and rip it out of context and apply it the way they do either. Now, this truth is repeated by Paul in 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, chapter 9 and verse 6. Remember the Macedonians who, who gave so generously? 
2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly. You know, I always say, look, if you give grudgingly, just don't give. Go reap corruption. <laughs> Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a, a cheerful giver. It doesn't say, God loves a cheerful giver, not a grudging, bowed up giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So here we're reminded that money is what lubricates the wheels of ministry, right? Enabling, you know, the wheels on the bus to go round and round. Amen? Wheels on the bus go round and round. The wheels of ministry, the, the, the wheels, they need to be lubricated. You know, people will often phone in. Someone emailed me. They don't even go to this church. Pastor John, I know that Pacific Hope has a heart for evangelism and, and doing works of the ministry and so on. So I had this grand idea to go out and feed the poor and do all this type of thing. And and, and ideas are great, but everything costs money. Amen? Everything costs money. Someone has to pay for it. So, now we have a, a pretty, um, I should say, a, a, a pretty steady giving church, and we're, so we're blessed in that respect. But here, Galatians 6 is about giving um, for the ministry um, of the word. That's the context to that verse. Amen? So those are the two we'll cover today. I don't have, yeah, I have another one, but we don't have, we don't have time for that. Probably take 25 minutes, so we'll save it. All right? Amen? Lord, we do thank you for your word. We, we thank you for uh, the whole of scripture, the whole counsel of God. We thank you um, that you have given your word for us to understand. You have given us your spirit um, um, to um, teach us. And you've given preachers to preach. And you've given um, evangelists to evangelize. You've given the body gifts, as we'll be reminded later this morning, um, to serve one another from your glory. Lord, bless this, um, your word to your people, um, both here and at home. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.